In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. <clears throat> it's wonderful to be with you this morning. Uh, I've, I've now, I'm now in, well into my last round of official Sunday visitations. Some of the clergy are calling it my farewell tour. <laughs> but that's fine with me because what happens on a farewell tour is that people come expecting to hear old favorites. And uh, I do get a chance this morning to talk about some of my favorite themes. Uh, in the gospel. What we have this morning is a wonderful illustration of the human tendency to be inventive. In the absence of data or hard and fast proof, people will make things up. It doesn't matter what the topic or issue is. Without solid, accurate information, people will use their imaginations and draw conclusions that may or may not be true. These imaginative constructions will then be used to bolster the opinions, beliefs, and prejudices which already shape their worldview, including their religion. To be fair, when people engage in this kind of speculation, they are trying to make sense of things. They do it out of a desire to understand a situation or a person, to make the various pieces of life fit together somehow and to think their way to a solution or a decision. We can observe and experience this dynamic in every aspect of life. Without accurate information, people will jump to conclusions which provide the illusion of certainty, or at least of having a matter settled. Such use of imagination is sometimes rooted in a deep distrust of mystery or open-endedness, a discomfort with encountering anything which cannot be corralled, categorized, and controlled by being defined and placed neatly in a box on the shelves of our minds. One of the topics or issues about which we have precious little actual data is resurrection. What actually happens to a person after death? What is resurrection really like? How does it happen? And if there is life after death, what is that life like? During the time of Jesus' ministry, it had become a common belief that the righteous dead would be raised to share in the eternal glories of God's ultimate victory. This life was in a new-made world in which resurrected and new-made bodies would conform completely to the commands of God. It was not understood in terms of the Greek concept of the immortality of a disembodied soul. That idea would later be blended creatively into Christian thought about the nature of the relationship between body and soul and about heaven, hell, and eternal life. The understanding that in the resurrection people would have physical bodies was supported by the Pharisees and assumed, assert, affirmed by Jesus as well. However, the conservative and aristocratic uh, Sadducees strongly denied that the dead could be raised. 
They posed a hypothetical question about life in the supposed resurrection in order to discredit Jesus with his followers. They present the unlikely case of a woman who marries seven brothers. The original purpose of this arrangement was to ensure that a man's name would be carried on and that he would have an heir. The woman would then also have someone to care for her in old age. In practice, this law had been misused and corrupted, and by the first century, these Leverite marriages had become rather rare, but the laws were still on the books. So the question posed to Jesus was this. In the supposed resurrection, whose wife would the woman be, since she had been married to all seven brothers? The question assumes that life in the resurrection will be a continuation of life in the present, and a wife was considered property. So in the resurrection, whose property would she be? Jesus responds by telling them that resurrection life is not a mere continuation of earthly existence. Rather, it is a radical transformation into a completely different, unimaginable state of being. In this life, God's reign would be eternally and fully established, apparently with no need to establish property rights. This is not entirely satisfying to people who crave details. St. <laughs> Paul, writing to the Thessalonians about 20 years after the resurrection of Jesus, tried to fill in some of the blanks, but what he offers is inconsistent. In his first letter to them, he says the dead will be raised when Jesus returns, and that's going to happen very soon. In the second letter, the timing is revised. The day of the Lord will come later, after rebellion and struggle take place and the evil one is destroyed. He provides precious little in the way of details about what life in the resurrection is like. Such writing still left the readers with as many questions as answers. I think of the hundreds of books, maybe thousands, which have been written interpreting all the signs and words and numbers and symbols offered in the Apocalypse of John. The felt need to pin down the time and place, to know in advance exactly what will happen and who will be included. It's clearly a deep hunger for many people. Never mind that Jesus told his followers it was not for them to know the, the details of the end time. He did speak of judgment. I think of Lazarus and the rich man, the separation of the sheep from the goats, judgment in each of those cases being made on the basis of whether one had met the needs of the poor in this life. Jesus also told them that the kingdom, the reign of God, was already available to them, already among you and within you. He taught parable after parable about the unearned gratuitous love of God and about the deep desire of God to be in relationship with everyone, sinners included. What would that mean for the resurrection? But if Jesus went to the realm of the dead before being resurrected and ascending into the heavens, what about his promise to the thief who died next to him on Calvary that today you will be with me in paradise? 
seems to me that at some point, faithful followers of Jesus are going to have to embrace mystery and paradox. If we're going to believe in the God of the Bible, the God of Jesus, we simply have to be willing not to know all the details. From beginning to end, our faith is mystery. God is one, yet three. How does that work? How is it that Jesus can be God incarnate, both fully human and fully divine? How is that actually possible? How can God love us so deeply and yet be willing to let us inflict such damage on each other and the world? How does the Holy Spirit actually exist and function in the world? How is Christ actually present in the Eucharist? How does grace operate in our lives? What really happens to us when we die? In the absence of hard data, we make things up. But I suggest to you that if we decide to believe in God, we should probably also decide to trust God. If we look at the whole sweep of the biblical story, we encounter a God who is absolutely determined to be in a covenant relationship with the people. The covenant begins in love of God and expands to love and each other and all people. A life characterized by justice and mercy and peace. God sends leaders, gives commandments, sends prophets, begs and pleads, sends the people into a 70-year timeout in Babylon, but nothing works. So this God we worship took on human life in the person of Jesus, leaving divine prerogatives behind to continue the pursuit of humanity. Parables of grace, teachings about the kingdom, all designed to help the people grasp God's deep desire and love for them, fell largely on deaf and contemptuous ears. This God in Jesus became vulnerable to the sin that makes human life so miserable at times. We are wonderful beings made in God's image, but we can be cruel and violent and murderous. Jesus bore the full brunt of human sin and rejection from indifference, ridicule and shaming to false arrest and torture and execution. And what was God's response? How did God respond to the complete rejection of this amazingly generous and sacrificial self-giving? What happened? What happened after Jesus was dead and buried in the tomb? The resurrection. You know the story. In the resurrection, God says to humanity, what you have done is not bad enough. Will you finally accept that there is nothing you can do that will make me stop loving you? My love for you is unquenchable, unnullifiable. Will you finally believe that I am calling you into a transformed life of mercy and grace and justice and joy? If we have bound ourselves to Jesus, This is the God we worship, the God who seeks out the littlest and the least 
and the lost. The God who asks us to live in the divine image in which we are created. The God who loves us beyond all reason and whose mysterious grace can transform us in ways we cannot even imagine and enrich our lives in ways we dare not ask. Either we believe this God or we do not. If we don't, if we insist on having all mystery stripped away, all questions answered in the here and now, we are doomed to disappointment. But if we believe this God, the God of Jesus, then we can allow ourselves to become calm yet diligent in following our risen Lord. Our diligence doesn't earn us either love or grace, but it makes us open to receive that love and to share it with the world around us. We get no points for being here today. What we get is the opportunity to focus our attention, to open our hearts and minds, and to become receptive to all that God is offering us. The people around Jesus continually asked him for proof, for details, for demonstrations of power that would remove all doubt. But the opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is the craving for a certitude which bakes our preconceived notions into granite and makes it impossible for us to be open to anything different, anything broader and deeper, more mysterious and wonderful. If we decide to believe in Jesus and the God he brings to us, we will begin to live moment to moment, responding to human need and being faithful stewards of all God has entrusted to us. We will not be anxious about mysterious details or busy ourselves inventing answers to questions we really don't need to ask. We are saved because God loves us and has already squandered grace on us. We don't have time to spend imagining what life in the resurrection is like. If we follow Jesus, we can begin to experience resurrection life even now. And if we decide to love God and all our neighbors, we can begin to give thanks for a life, a universe, and a flow of history that are, in the long run, Christ-shaped. We can long for the arrival of the kingdom that has been bubbling up among us and within us as invisible as yeast. And we will yearn for the moment when we sing out, let us come to the banquet and be merry, for yesterday we were dead. May it be so. <laughs>